Hey there. Welcome to the Deeper Podcast, a podcast that is all about how we can together live lives that unleash more courage and love, and not just the big ways that often seem beyond our capacity, especially now, but but in the small ways that build to make a difference together. I'm Reverend Sean, one of your hosts, and I hope you're having a good day. Today, we just got some snow here in Colorado, and it actually feels cold. This Canadian actually feels cold for the first time in a while, which is such a good feeling. I actually miss being actually cold. But anyways, today we're coming to the end of our series on relationships and rebuilding them. This is our penultimate episode, so we have one more. But we're focusing today on the beginnings of relationships and how we actually build relationships as, as really a spiritual practice. We're going to hear from Reverend Gretchen in her message, but I also sat down and kind of interviewed one of my friends who is a Reverend Joe Cherry. He's been a guest at Foothills before. He's the person that married my husband and I a few years ago. Huh. I should know how many years ago, but we're just going to move on. He's been a really important person to me. I said, hey, do you want to talk about our friendship? And he was like, uh, sure. And so we sat down and we recorded a conversation about it. It's, it's definitely a little bit vulnerable putting this out there. And I'm hoping it's going to be interesting to other people and not just me. I think it is. But this is definitely one of those moments where I'm pushing publish on an episode and I'm not exactly sure how it's going to land, which sometimes means it's going to be amazing and other times means it's going to be kind of a train wreck. So you can let me know because we always want to hear from you and how you're liking the podcast. When I see people in person or online, sometimes they tell me I love hearing that. And if you want to get in touch, please do. So, friendship. I'm going to hand it over to Reverend Gretchen to begin our time speaking about friendship. The first week of February, Sean and I attended a learning conference for UU ministers. We were in San Diego with about 140 other colleagues. San Diego was where the conference was originally scheduled, but then last November, given the ongoing state of the pandemic, they decided to move the conference all online, which meant that three, about 300 colleagues, maybe a few more, including Reverend Elaine, uh, attended from home and on Zoom. Those of us who still wanted to come to San Diego were basically invited to one big watch party. So I was in San Diego, but the conference was really online, including the morning worship services. They were all online and on Zoom. If you wanted to watch the services with others also in San Diego, there was like a big room, big tent actually, with big screens set up. Um, but then I realized early on that you it would mean that you wouldn't have access to the chat. And that actually, if I was going to be on Zoom, I'd rather just be in my hotel room and in my PJs having my morning cup, morning cup of coffee without masks or distancing with the camera off. Maybe you can relate. So there I was in my hotel room and also in a worship service on Zoom that I was really enjoying. When suddenly I heard the leader say, we're going to pause here and you're all going to spend some time in breakout groups so we can connect and reflect more fully together. And without even thinking in that moment, I went, ah, and I hit leave meeting. I literally, I was in my hotel room by myself, but I still made that sound. It was a complete impulse. Ah, click, 
no, I don't want to reflect more fully or no, I don't want to be seen. No, I do not want to connect more with people more deeply. I just want to sit here passively and semi-anonymously in my protective shell of the Zoom camera off and the microphone muted. I've thought a lot about that moment since and other moments like it, not because it was rare for me, but because it actually isn't. And it's not just about Zoom. I mean, if I'm in a big lecture and they ask us to turn to someone near us and reflect together more deeply, I have more than once had a sudden need to tend to something out of the room. Despite the fact that I am often the one inviting and encouraging deeper connections and small group reflections, when asked for myself, my auto response is set to, ah, click, leave meeting. I acknowledge I might feel some guilt about this instinct and the basic hypocrisy that it represents. Because I know intellectually why this turning towards each other is really good pedagogical tool and it's also a vital invitation. We long to be known. We long to know others. It is often the driving force behind all of our actions. We long to be received for our truth, for all of its mess and complexity. We want to be seen by someone who will bear witness and say, I see that, I see you fully, and I love you still. I love you not in spite of your mess. I love you because of your mess. We long to be known and to be seen whole and holy. Adrian Rich reminds us that being known and knowing others breaks down our self-delusion and isolation. It honors our complexity and it promises us company for the hardest parts of life, that hard way, which we know is a precious and rare gift. But even more important than all of these, being known and knowing others in real and sustained ways is literally life-saving. Or to get, at, to get at that the opposite way, loneliness, which is what I would describe as a feeling of being unknown and disconnected, has deadly consequences for us individually and collectively. I shared some of this a few weeks ago as we were beginning this series, but it bears repeating. Loneliness significantly increases inflammation, heart disease, and dementia. It's like a 50% greater chance of dementia as your loneliness increases. It significantly increases your risk of premature death from all causes. It's pretty much the equivalent on your health of, of smoking at least 15 cigarettes a day. It makes it 32% more likely that you'll have a stroke and 57% and it gives you a 57% increased risk of regular emergency room visits. So set this alongside the recent, recent surveys where over 60% of Americans report feeling persistently lonely and where one in four Americans don't feel like anyone knows them. I'm just going to say that again. One in four Americans feels like, like no one really knows them. Some of you have talked to me about the particular kind of loneliness we hold in our third third of life. It is a loneliness that accumulates through a process of losing people we know that have known us, 
our friends and family year by year, which in turn marks an accumulated process of being known, the loss of being known. For all the ways we talk about the gifts of a long life, we don't really talk about how lonely it can be and how suddenly it can happen that there is simply no one near us that knows us. The friendships we make as we age are often not as deep or as full as the ones we make earlier in life, as there just isn't that history to hold us in the same ways. The one way that I've seen older adults overcome this is through authentic and deep relationships with people from younger generations, through mentorships or through shared service projects, or maybe even just by being assigned to a random small group together weeks at a time. These can be surprisingly powerful sites of being known and to know another. Now, for as powerful as these relationships can be for older adults, they are just as needed for younger generations. The most recent surveys show that the younger you are, the lonelier you are. Nearly 80% of Gen Zers and over 70% of millennials describe themselves as lonely. You might think that the internet and the constant process of social networking would help, but as Adam Smiley Pazalski says in his book, Friendship in the Age of Loneliness, social isolation and loneliness are different. That is, you can be very socially connected, yet still be lonely. Social, social isolation denotes having few connections or interactions, he says, whereas loneliness involves the sub subjective perception of isolation. The discrepancy between one's desired and actual level of connection. See, we can be very networked, yet still feel entirely unknown. And actually that discrepancy of having lots of contacts, but feeling totally unknown can be its own particular kind of pain. And despite what you might think, this does not seem to have actually gotten worse during the pandemic. After reviewing a comprehensive study Pazwalski reports that social distancing protocols and stay-at-home orders did not actually lead to an increase in loneliness in America. Researchers instead found resilience, not loneliness, as people felt more supported by others than before the pandemic. Even while physically isolated, there was an overall feeling of increased social support and being in this together. He then goes on to describe the various creative ways that we all adapted in the early 2020 pandemic. It is both inspiring and also deflating because of the ways that we know now it is not sustained into these later, less clear, more anxious times of pandemic 2022. My point is, I know all of this. And really, I think we all know all of this. As Adrienne Rich says, we know how much we long to unravel the truth of ourselves and the truth of life. We know it just not just in our minds, we know it in our bodies. And yet I know I'm not the only one who impulsively, when offered op opportunities to go past small talk or to spend time with people that we actually want to spend time with or when invited to meet people who could become new friends. I'm not the only one I know who impulsively, metaphorically or literally hits leave meeting. 
Author and theologian Jessica Ritchie describes growing up in Denver, where she felt like she knew everyone. I, when I read that, I was I was thinking, just imagine if she grew up in Fort Collins or in a small town like what I grew up in, or what I know many of you grew up in. But anyway, she describes growing up in Denver, and she felt like everybody there knew her. It isn't a small town, of course, but she said it, it felt like one. By the time she was an adult, she was ready to meet people who did not, for example, remember when she danced to Madonna's Like a Prayer in her school talent show, or that time she wrecked her car into a fire hydrant. But then a number of years later, when she had moved away to a new place, she started to realize that while it was fun to play for a while at being anyone, eventually she realized that what she wanted most of all to be was to be known. As she writes, I longed for the comfort of people with whom I could be real in my grief and my heartbreak and my hope. She goes on to tell about adventures on the dating app Tinder, which is one place that people do go to find other humans to be real with, theoretically, except that, as she says, that often what you find there is exactly the opposite. Instead of truths, you find carefully constructed lies of life perfectly performed photos and chosen words, honed to keep everything true under a protective layer of performed perfection. How are you? What do you do? This weekend looks like nice weather. Many people didn't feel real to her and some literally were not. Some were bots, Tinder bots, designed to be spectacular at small talk. They were so common and clever that people have had to come up with a quick test, a trick to assess if a new, this new connection they were making was actually a human or a bot. It's a trick a test that, they, that people have come to know as the potato test. Because bots are clever, but they just cannot replicate the randomness that actual humans offer. That as she says, humans go down conversational rabbit holes that make no sense to an algorithm. So when you get start to get worried, if you're on this um, on this app, you start to get worried that the person that you are talking to is not a person. You write to them, if you're a human, say potato. Bots don't have a programmed response for something so absurd. So literally, they can't say potato when someone randomly asks them to. What exactly constitutes this uniquely human thing that can't be duplicated by artificial intelligence? Richie wonders. Could it be our flaws? Our jokes that don't always land or our weird hobbies we wonder if anyone else will find entertaining? Is it our silly stories or complicated families? None of us is perfect. And somewhere in these imperfections, we can be found. Now, generally, when we try to explain why we leave meeting instead of choosing deeper connections, we tend to say that we just, we just don't have any enough time. We say our lives are too stressful or too busy. Our kids are busy. They keep us busy. Or our partners are busy. So we're busy. We're too tired, especially these days in this world today, we're too, we're just too tired. But my sense is that more than any of these, we struggle to say yes, because we know 
that revealing a truth of ourselves, being known in real ways, means a willingness to share these things that we just we don't just not share with others. We, we tend to also not share the meaning with ourselves. It means a willingness to say potato to each other. That is to reveal whatever strange and random truth makes us the particular humans that we are uniquely and to keep sharing and refining our truths over time through practice and trust building and intention. Being known and knowing others is a process not unlike a spiritual practice in that it requires both intention and a sustained commitment, a discipline, as Sean would say. And it requires a certain routine, a certain a series of habits that we can study and learn, which is to say being known doesn't just happen. And it isn't just it just it isn't possible just through simple proximity. You can't just hang around people or near people and hope that you get that they get to know you. You can't just post more opinions on Facebook or start a TikTok channel. Although if you do that, please let me know because I definitely, definitely want to follow you. Now, being known actually starts first with the intention of consent. There is no coercion in covenant, and there is no coercion in the practice of being known and knowing others. What I mean to say is you always have permission to leave meeting. I mean that literally here or in any other place where you are invited into deeper conversation and reflection, or and I mean that in your life. There is a time to be known, and there is a time for anonymity. But part of this idea of this intention of consent is to say, if you are always, always choosing anonymity, if you are always avoiding the real, always leaving meeting, always considering the real human connection is a disruption to your life. I mean, the thing that you have to try to fit in between the, the busyness that is your real life then this truth that we long for cannot, cannot take root. You cannot be known by consistently choosing to be unknown. Secondly, it, after consent, this practice requires intention in our bodies. It requires checking in with the feelings that arise when we are invited to a conversation of the real and the true. Our bodies seek first safety and being known is scary and vulnerable. And in a certain way, it is, it is always a little bit unsafe. And so our bodies may first tense up or turtle as I've called it. I mean, they might put on our protective shell and go into hiding. My habit of hiding is going into either performance mode or task mode, staying in my head. I mean, to avoid anything resembling saying potato. That's my version. You probably know yours. Now, sometimes this hiding's protective shell is all you got. It's all you can manage and that's okay. It's just that again, this, this just won't get you there. When we leave behind the weird and the imperfect and the painful parts, we leave behind what makes us human. We leave behind the truth that we long to be known. So the commitment we must make is to practice letting down that protective shell and finding our way towards the real. The body practices that we practice together and worship on Sundays and in some of our small groups is one way into this. You know how it goes. 
find your feet on the floor. Feel the weight of your body held on your chair, on the earth. Look to your right. Look to your left. Look behind you. Look for the exit. Breathe deeply and slowly into your belly. Try humming. Um, put your hand on your heart or your belly and hum. Um, if you find yourself yawning, that's a good sign that your body is moving towards a posture of settling that is a posture of trust. After you've done this for a while and you're getting to know another person, you might even decide to do some of these things with them before you begin in a given conversation, just to signal to your body that the real can show up just a little more. Now they say to turn an acquaintance into a close friend, you need to spend in the range of 200 hours together, which I mean, let's just say that you meet someone an hour a week, which is a lot. That's still years of time. The author, Kat Mellis, she has some good news for us about this. She says in her, it's her book, she says in her book, we should get together. She theorizes that this number is based on faulty research because she says the studies that came to this number included mostly college students with very different life patterns and free time and histories. So she's been working over the last decade to find what she calls fast tracks to intimacy. Melissa's feeling is that if we can dedicate ourselves to a certain process of intimacy, what she describes as robust immersion in quality connection marked by vulnerability, self-disclosure, and empathetic listening, we can fast-track fast friendship into existence, which is good news, especially for that promise of making new friends in our older years and the promise of being known and knowing others the whole of our lives. Maybe it's true, Jessica Ritchie writes, that it hurts a little to become real and to risk intimacy with a stranger who might become that friend that we're looking for, or we might be the one that they need at that precise moment. Perhaps it is our job to help one another become more real, one absurd question at a time. So my dears, if you need that reminder that the way to become known and loved is found not in spite of our flaws, but because of them. Say, potato. Amen, and blessed be. Potato, right? It's all we're wanting is someone else to say potato with us. But the, the discipline that Gretchen talks about a friendship takes. It's become so apparent to me, especially as an adult. It takes showing up time and time again so that you have the possibility of building something together. And that, and that theme came up in my conversation with my friend Joe about 
our relationship. Now, Joe is a UU minister. He's right now serving in Falmouth, Massachusetts. But I met him before I was even in seminary. And I was just starting to admit I wanted to be a minister. And as I said at the beginning, I sent him a message. I was like, hey, do you want to talk about our friendship? Can I record it? He said yes, for some reason. And so this is our conversation. I wanted to talk about our friendship and how it started. You were so young. How long? Is it 12 years? It's probably 12 years. So you've been my friend for 12 years and that's a long time. Three fourths of your lifetime. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I just thought, hey, let's talk about that because it's a meaningful relationship to me. It is to me too. How did we become friends? So I want to say I met you at the annual general meeting of the CUC in Toronto. Yes. In that Toronto, is what I remember. In Toronto, to say it properly. Toronto. Um, yes, Toronto. I have a memory that you were very clever, which I appreciated, and a little sarcastic, which I also appreciated. I also remember being very having a very clear like awareness within myself that I wanted to be clear about a platonic interest. I didn't want to be creepy. Mm-hmm. How many years older than I am I than you? I'll be 54 next month. You're like 31. 31? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, it was a substantial age difference and I didn't want to be even remotely seeable as predatory or creepy. There is the dynamic that we're both gay. Right. That's an added element of that not wanting to be creepy. Right. It's an extra complexity. But I also have had a small flock of gay seminary students who I've sort of mother-hand into ministry. Hmm. Right. There's been a small cadre of uh, people all over the gender spectrum who are queer, who have come to me through various either direct recommendation or happenstance. Mm-hmm. And I want to say that I knew right away you were thinking about ministry. Or you talked yeah. to me about it right away. Yeah. And so I think that, oh, what year was that? 2010. So I was halfway through college and I think I had started the process of, or at least I had kind of relented to the idea that I would go to seminary <laughs> next. I. I'm a very much a believer of one hand up, one hand behind. Like yeah. None of us do this work alone and we all need mentors. So there's that. And then I was thinking about this conversation today on my way in. There used to be sort of this idea in the gay world called, an, someone called it the gay auntie, who was a slightly older gay man than the, than you, who wants to like help you and support you and it has a lot to do with our sometimes need and always our ability to choose family i thought i right away you were clever and um a little sarcastic which i super appreciated and i thought you're very funny and i thought well if i can be any sort of help i should and and then any sort of idea that i was somehow smarter than you or wiser than you was quickly tanked the more we talked (laughs) (laughs) because because i arrogantly talk about things that i don't know about i think that you're intellectually brave how about that intellectually brave 
<laughs> okay, I want to use that. <laughs> I'm not talking outside my knowledge. I'm just being intellectually brave. Exactly. I'm not afraid to explore things. We have specialties that line different and complementary areas, which mm. I super appreciate. And I, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty clear about that over our 12 years of friendship. Yeah. So I don't see you as someone I have to help along. You really are an amazing colleague to me and frequently very helpful, which I appreciate. You were doing your internship. That's what brought you to Canada in general. Mm -hmm. And I was, yeah, starting to explore that ministry thing. I feel like I didn't know how old you were. I think you were, your age was ambiguous to me. Are you I've met a few me people. You call me immature? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm <laughs> saying you're, you're ageless. What drew me to you was A, you were a queer person doing the ministry thing, but also you have this quality of just being very blunt about things. And there's like a bit of sarcasm in that, but mostly it's like, you you call it like you see it in a way that is not threatening. Hmm. It's like stabilizing. It, when you're saying things that are true, it's not like an earthquake. You're just like naming things. Hmm. And that's really something I've appreciated. We were able to, I think, quickly have conversations about things that were meaningful to both of us that, you know, go on different sides of how much either of us know about anything, but right. that we're able to be honest and we could disagree with each other in a way that was, didn't threaten the foundation of the connection. That it was okay. Yeah. That it was okay. If I dare to talk about, you know, the friendship between Emerson and Thoreau, <laughs> right, where they're each of them values the intellectual ability of the other um mm -hmm. and then emerson has that quote about um to with a true friend that can think aloud mm. right i feel like that feels kind of similar to that yeah i i agree i feel like when we talk i i can share the like rough draft of my thinking about something and that's okay i don't have to like polish it up before i talk to you if there's something that i'm struggling with or that's going on that I you feel, receive the like rough draft of my life and that's okay. I feel same. I do. Which is great. Despite your shocking youth. Shocking. <laughs> we met at this conference and I'm like trying to recreate this in my mind because I don't know if it's a pandemic, parenting, aging, or just I'm, I have a bad memory. I'm trying to like track the trajectory of our connection because like we've never lived in the same city. No. We've not. So we, we could probably like tally up the amount of times that we've actually physically been present to each other on like our digits on our hands together. I, I agree. But I feel like we're both fairly comfortably digitally living. Right. Mm -hmm. So it isn't like this is a foreign environment for either one of us. You know, um, I see. So there were in Toronto. There has there been even a one or two GAs. Yeah, right. I think um, so. You know, and then, um, you know, your wedding. Yeah. But like, how, how did we get, because you married 
Charles, my husband, and I in, in the ceremony. We picked you because you were someone who was both connected to Unitarian Universalism, which is an important part of our lives, also a, another queer person that kind of gets the uniqueness of queer relationship, and also kind of that, that mentor figure that you talked about further along and have seen the arc of queer history in a way that we haven't. But like, how do we get there? I think it was probably in the beginning, a lot of just email or I don't think we really video chatted that much. I think it was mostly email or some phone calling, but it wasn't very long until you were here in the States a couple of years, right? Yeah, it would have been two years. I feel like I often think about calling you when I want a thought partner. Or I feel like there's some part of your skill set that can shine a light into a corner of a question I'm having. Uh -huh. Like you're much more data focused than I am. I feel like this is going to make me sound bad. I go by instinct and you go by like information. I sometimes can make leaps based on what my gut says, or you're reading the data. That's one of the things that I appreciate about you is you have a really good gut sense on a situation and on like people and dynamics, whereas I can sometimes feel adrift in that mm -hmm. needing, needing that kind of grounding. And if I want to talk about a really complicated thing, I can come to you and say, this is what I'm thinking about. And you can say, well, here's what I'm hearing. You say that to me a lot. Uh, here's what I know. And then there doesn't have to be an agreement. It can be. It is absolutely thinking out loud. It's the rough draft you're talking about. I just searched your name in my inbox as you were talking. Oh no. Um, and apparently we, our first email was oh on, oh God, June 15th, 2011. And you sent me a, don't make me be embarrassed. A. I, I, it doesn't, it doesn't, the link doesn't even work anymore. <laughs> so it's like some uh, Michael Cyril Creighton. Oh, do you know who that says? I do. He, uh, he made a really funny series of videos about being, uh, a ticket salesperson in a theater in New York city. Maybe because we have a similar, um, humor. Maybe it's been a long time. It's 11 years ago. That's a long time. And then I was looking at the rest and we used to chat a lot on Google yeah. Hangouts, apparently. Yes. Before it was called Google Hangouts, it was just called Gchat or something. Yeah, Gchat or something. Yep. Like there's like pages and pages yeah. of just records of our conversations. Oh, God. Do not share those, whatever you do. <laughs> I'm sure it was completely appropriate, but maybe embarrassing. So don't do it. You said things like, how did your day shake out? that's not inappropriate i'm not saying it is it's just funny to look back and like i don't i didn't even remember this and yet i think like this is how our relationship was probably built there's probably dozens of like every single month in between 2013 and they stopped in like 2016 goodness we <laughs> so we have an ongoing conversation for that amount of time in a way that many people used to, or probably still do, if they're locally, do in person, we were able to do, navigate that digitally. 
And the very fact that you would go back and find those things is exactly the data set I'm talking about. <laughs> Let's look at the empirical realities of our relationship, Joe. Right. Let, let, yeah. Come on. Come on. There's data here somewhere. I know there is. There's data here. <laughs> Ground ourselves in data. Oh, that's funny. And I remember when you invited Charles and I to your wedding. Mm -hmm. And I think that was like an important moment for me because it was kind of like an acknowledgement of being kind of in that, that circle of, of care and importance. Okay. In a way that was not just like someone I chatted to or I went to for advice. Cause I think at the beginning that a lot, a lot of our conversation, like, as you said, was kind of helping me navigate that the beginnings of ministry uh, or of seminary in that space, but then kind of being invited to your wedding. Like I never thought it was one way, but it, I feel like it, at the beginning it was defined by the fact that you were further along in mm -hmm. the kind of process. But I think that was a moment of like, oh no, this is kind of a mutual thing. Um, like I really, I'm like I really that... do value you. Yeah, like, oh. <laughs> but it wasn't just like you, you felt an obligation to nurture and challenge me as a up and coming person. Oh, well, I'm sorry it took that long because I felt no, that I, way all along. I pr probably, I pr it probably didn't take that long, but I think that was like a symbolic moment ah. of it of that kind of shift. Since we're talking about weddings, um, yeah. I was so pleased when you asked me to do your wedding and really honored in, a, in such a deep way. I, I had to work really hard not to be overly emotional about it all. I would say not lately, the biggest honor of my ministry so far. Mm. Wow. It meant a lot to me. And I didn't cry, which was a real challenge. I got a little emotional a little bit once in the middle of I, it, but I pulled I it back. I was going to say, there was a moment. <laughs> I pulled it back. I pulled it in. I I mean, I thought I I was way more overcome with emotion than I thought I would be. Which is like my own. <laughs> Who would assume you would be emotional at their wedding? Not me. Right. There's no data for that. <laughs> There's no all I have was an empty data set. What do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're signing a contract together. You're terrible. <laughs> it's not that bad. <laughs> it's not that bad. <laughs> but one of the things that I appreciate about wedding is that as you were talking us through kind of the process and you were developing, you learned that our vows were going to, were took from John Winthrop's sermon. Yeah. Who's a congregationalist or governor. You kind of wove that into the service. You have a real intentionality streak to you. It's like the way that you will send me messages like you did on Sunday when I was like talking with a group of people about making friendship. And I got this little message from you that was just like a heart. And it said, just like wanted that's you it. to know I'm thinking of you or so. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> like you have a real intentionality behind your your relationshiping. Well, I'm assuming, I was assuming that you might be still at work, you know, I was. and right. And I was just like, oh, I was thinking about you and that was it, you know, clearly we started our friendship through G chat. Yeah. So Google's our overlord, but when we're together, it's really fun. 
and like now we're doing this recording, but I can see you. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's nice. It's nice to see you. And when I see you in person, it's great, but I don't feel like our digital communication is less than maybe because so much of our communication in the beginning was that, was that. We never went long distance <laughs> in yeah. our relationship. No. It was always long distance. Right. Because we began digitally, we're okay digitally without feeling like it's compromise. Maybe that helped because I found out how quirky you were in real life. <laughs> you would want to <laughs> three days in a row with me, and that's a little too much. Yeah, it was it was a bit much. So I have to admit, I, I sometimes say to folks, my ADD, a part of that is uh, a problem with object permanence. If I don't see something, I forget it exists. That's why my organizational strategy is um, horizontal and not tucked away. <laughs> because if I put something behind something, I immediately forget that it exists. And unfortunately, sometimes that relates to people too. Mm -hmm. That if someone isn't like in front of me, I forget that they exist. And it's like not intentional. And it's not a sign of my apathy that I don't. Yeah, that I, I don't care about the relationship. It literally doesn't cross my mind. And then when I see someone, it's like, oh, it's amazing. And then I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> I, I haven't. I haven't done anything to cultivate this relationship because I sort of forgot you existed in this daily way. Ha have you noticed that <laughs> in relating to me? Is that why you like reach out periodically just to say hello? Because you know I'll just like space? Um, I'm going to answer this question in a really uncomfortable and vulnerable truth. Okay. It is not why I do that. It's because I'm thinking about you and that's all. Mm. It's not meant to prompt an automatic response, but it's been my pattern throughout my life to be the one who reaches out. Mm. And sometimes that, if I sit and think about it and I'm having a hard time, it makes me <clears throat> wonder about how much I value myself. I read mm. a quote maybe a month ago. This guy said, stop sending text messages first and you'll see how many, how many dead plants you've been watering. Uh -huh. And that made me cry. It hit me so hard. Yeah. I am the one who reaches out in almost all my relationships. And I sometimes wonder or worry, not with you, but other people, if they just respond out of a courtesy, if I am not in front of somebody they ever think about me or value me. You know, you do sometimes initiate contact, which is nice. It's true. I do. And I'm not telling you this to encourage that. This is about friendship and it requires some vulnerability and that's where it is. Mm -hmm. Right. I do mm -hmm. sometimes feel like if you look at my phone at, at the outgoing messages and the incoming messages, it's a very lopsided story and it makes me wonder if i'm super needy socially or whatever i, I hear the change in your voice as you started to say this yeah so i will leave that up to you to edit that or keep that <clears throat> i've been in that place before too one of the challenges i've had with friendships is since we've but we, the kind of one-two punches, like we we got kids and then a pandemic happened. Right. Nothing complicated so, about that. Right. Nothing complicated about that. We also live in a college town. People associate with the college <clears throat> that we like know, grad students, teachers, professors, they kind of move. 
right. kind of transients here. But like mm-hmm. a lot of our friends, as soon as we got kids, it was like we were in a different world. And especially a lot of gay guys don't necessarily want to deal with children. Right. And the ones who did want to deal with children, it's like our, our lives are also like, we can't just like go for a weekend trip somewhere. Exactly. That we decide on Thursday. <laughs> it's hard enough working every Sunday. But <laughs> but like just the reality of like, we have these dependents that we can't just uproot and have follow our lives. Right. We need to actually maintain for them. My husband and I both felt like, okay, so the... The homos that don't want to be around kids are having a hard time with us. The ones that do want to be around kids, we have scheduling conflicts. And then we have a pandemic in which we're not supposed to do anything. And kind of reaching out to folks and trying to make those connections, it's definitely, it can be demoralizing. Absolutely. That's partly why it's so important to have anchor people Anchor, not anger, anchor people in your life. Can we have anger people too? Oh, we do have those, but I don't rely on them. You know, that's wise. And Can you um, say more about anchor people. So I made up the phrase right there Joe Cherry TM. Right, exactly. Define it, please. The people to whom you're tethered in, in a good way and in a mutually accountable and supportive way. The people with whom you can be your raw self, the one you can ask hard questions of the ones who, if you, if they need you, you will drop everything and run to them. We need those people and not everyone can be at that level of intimacy with us. I think Mm -hmm. particularly in our jobs, there's a level of intimacy that we have with our congregants, which though is real and honest is not mutual. Yeah. It is not appropriate or their job to take care of us, you know, and our job is complicated by many, many things, you know, including having multiple hundreds of people who think they know what your job is to having people who are really wounded in the world come to us to people who just are having an average day come to us. Plus, you know, birth, death, and the whole gamut in between. We have a responsibility to maintain a caring engagement without it being a mutual engagement. It's funny, before seminary, I worked really hard never live, to never live in a bubble of people who are just like me. In the city of Chicago, I live in the South Side. In Detroit, I live in Detroit. I made sure I had a multiple, like a multifaceted group of friends wherever I lived. But once I entered seminary, it became like a bubble. Cemetery. Stop it. Once I entered seminary, it became like a bubble. Like mm. all my friends were UU ministers or ministers of other kinds. And I've ended up in this minister ghetto. And it's hard because they don't, like you, I'm sure, know. Why can't you go on Saturday night? Why can't you just go away for the weekend? What do you mean you've got to cancel this plan at the last minute because someone's in the hospital? I may have told you this before, but... I'll repeat it here. You know, when I was in England, our colleagues there taught me this beautiful phrase. They said, this is an impossible job and an amazing privilege. Mm. And I really try to focus on the and an amazing privilege part of it because we get 
to witness so many amazing things. But I worry that non-minister people don't understand what that means. Like I can say that to you and you know what it means to hold a, a brand newborn or the hand of someone who's dying or other really difficult and beautiful things in life in a way that others don't get to experience. And I don't know if, if someone else can really get that. And those become kind of the heights and depths of our career. I don't know that they're appreciatable by other people. So I think we start circling each other because mm. we get it. Mm. I don't know. Just a thought. Well, as you were talking, it, it made me think about how so often the, like the, the criticism or the critique that we get about our jobs, at least I feel like in my experience, has to do with the, the like very public parts of our job, like the parts that people see and from the outside, like what people perceive our job as. And yet the majority of the time, the most beautiful and, and tender and heart-wrenching and, and powerful moments are the ones that no one sees. Like they're not, they're not on the stage, they're mm -hmm. not on Sunday, they're in a hospital room, they're in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, they're in the you know, planning of a memorial. Like there are these experiences that we have that are not on display. They're essential to who we are. And when I feel disconnected from my call, it's usually because I don't have enough of those experiences. Mm -hmm. That divide is really challenging. It's like what people see you doing versus all the parts of the role that they don't see. You can't also can't really talk about a lot of the stuff that they can't see because you're holding it privileged. You're, you're right. holding it in confidence. It's a very, it's a very funny sort of dichotomy. I'm a person who likes to be in the third row of a protest march. I don't want to be in the front. I have no need to be like, you know, in the front row, but I'm in a job where I'm often in the front row, right? Every Sunday I'm preaching and that's pretty much front row. <laughs> the most enjoyable and rewarding parts of the job are the quiet parts that you're talking about. Even committee meetings. I love committee meetings. I'm a weirdo. I know it, but it's where a lot of the relationships happen. When I get to watch them and be part of them. Mm -hmm. So when I want to think about what ministry might be, that's one of the favorite things I like to talk to you about, you know, what's possible. When I am having a struggle in my ministry and I come to you, one thing I really appreciate about how you receive me is that you do a good job of finding how much on the hook I should be <laughs> in the moment. <laughs> you laugh knowingly. It's a funny phrase. <laughs> I have friends who, no matter what I say, they're going to be on my side quotes. Mm -hmm. And I like, I want, I want someone to not be on my side, but like be in, I don't know what the right metaphor is. Like be in my court. Okay. Like I want someone to, to say, this sounds really hard. And also it seems like you're, 
you're screwing up. Or there's a part of this that's your responsibility. And, it's, and it seems like you're not taking it. Hmm. Like there's like there's a depth of relationship where you're not just supporting them blindly. It's not a cheap kind of cheap grace situation. Yeah. It's the like, I love you. And so if I'm seeing this part that it seems like is blindsiding you, you're shirking your role. You're not afraid to, to name that in love. Wow. I can't even imagine a time when I remember you shirking your stuff, but, um, no, I would, I would, I would, I would also value that. And I do value that right. When you reflect that back to me, do you, have you looked in this corner part? Like I said earlier, like our flashlights are complimentary. I've met people at conferences or in places and they're very quick to tell me all the things that are wrong with me. Both, all both of them. Perspective. All two of well, them. There's only, there's only two things wrong with me. Exactly. <laughs> they're huge. They're they're foundational, but there's only two of them. Only two. I only have two structural problems in me. <laughs> I do like that you brought up cheap grace. I have little patience for that or cheap theology. And so when I said clever earlier, I meant in a very British kind of clever, right? Not mm. just funny. Because let's face it, I'm the funny one in this relationship, but you're a very smart guy and you're very insightful. And, and I, I really appreciate that. And I can rely on you to really think things through with. And that's, uh, important to me because I sometimes have some really harebrained ideas. We have joked before in the past about how I come to you to talk to me about what the youth of the youth of America wants, but it's only a joke. The, the youths. The youth. What do, what do kids these days want anyway? A job and the end of capitalism. Those two seem counterintuitive. But I do appreciate your pers perspective and the trust that you've, you've placed in me over, over the years. Is, it's, it's nice. And it's, I hope you understand it's mutual. No, I definitely feel, I definitely feel that mutuality. It's something that has definitely grown and for us to be like 12 years into our relationship, I mean, that's longer than I've known my husband for. Where are the GTAS about that conversation? <laughs> that's for the uncensored version of this podcast. The, no, I remember the whole, like, I met this cute boy. His name is Charles, <laughs> but I'm nervous. Oh yeah. I remember that's that. true. I and then he wouldn't go out with me. Well, and he clearly, wouldn't go out with me, Joe. Perseverance won the day after all. Consensual perseverance. Yes. yes, exactly. Now, something you said earlier is brings up a point about me that I'm really fond of, which seems like a funny thing to say. I've been told by many people who are much younger than me, A, I'm not as old as my numbers are, but also that I have a way of speaking to young adults in a way that it's not coddling or condescending or in some way, we know what condescending means, right? I'm just kidding. I saw that in a joke recently. <laughs> well, actually. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> condescending, yeah, condescending means talking down to people. So I think I often get read, get read as younger because I don't have that. Yes, you're not patronizing. I, yeah, I try not to be. Only stores, only restaurants. So I try to patronize, not people. 
I'm really glad that I have that, that people have that perception of that I'm not, you know, patting people on the head and saying, oh, that's very cute way to your mature adult. I'm really curious about people have to say, and I think I'm good at finding the gifts of people. When I was younger and I would, you know, meet certain adults, there would be this kind of idolization of youth. Ah. And then like a condescension. Like there's like, those are the two poles. And neither one of those feels good. Yeah. Like it doesn't feel good to feel, oh, you think I have all of the answers and I'm going to save everything or I have, I have nothing to contribute. Someone once told me <laughs> that I wouldn't have anything interesting to say until I was at least 50. Wow. That's cruddy. Yeah, it was a comment I got in my first year of ministry. You're not going to have anything interesting to say to you're at least 50. That's just idiocy. <laughs> Ageism. I mean, there's lots of words for that. Yeah. I think for, from his perspective, I, I think it's true. I think nothing I would say would be interesting to him. I doubt even if I'm 50, I would be interesting to this per specific person. Well, there are always those people. You find a way to be in the middle. You listen. You're intrigued, you're curious. Also, you, you don't like throw out everything that you know. You, you bring that into the conversation in a way that's constructive. Well, the and secret sometimes is... Sometimes that means challenging. The secret is secret. I don't know anything is the secret, actually. No, yeah, that's, that's completely true. Do you want to talk about what this means? This really, in all honesty, intergenerational queer minister relationship? Yeah. God, that makes me feel old. What does it mean, Joe? I think for me, it just means, or it's just been so rewarding. I don't know that I have to assign it any sort of meaning beyond the fact that it's meant so much to me so far. And I want it to continue to mean a lot to me. Yeah, I wish I wish I were feeling more eloquent at the moment and could wax rhapsodic about it. You, you can tell me if this is like, a morose thought <laughs> but yes like it is okay <laughs> it's like i i've i've actually thought about you dying okay it, in the sense of my my hope to be with you in that process and that oh, for wow. our relationship to in, to endure wow it's an odd thing to admit I've, I've admitted a couple odd things today too, right? It's all in the service of honesty. Wow. So I'm pretty sure I could haunt you if that's what you are really asking about later to do endure yes. that way. Please. So when I was a very young man, 28, which is a long time ago now for me, I met an elderly gay man who was 88. And Ruster Holtz Walls was a very important part of my life for six years until he died. That was in 2004 he died, but still he's some, he's a companion to me. Even now mm. I can recall him. My wedding ring is, has his wedding ring in it. Mm. I wanted my dad's wedding ring when I got married and my dad, they'd gotten rid of it. 
even though my parents were still married. I don't know what that, that was about. As I was preparing to get married, I found Walls's wedding ring in one of the boxes of things of Walls's that I had. And I took it to the jewelers. They expanded the ring so that my ring would fit me. I'm looking at it right now. And inside it says H-E-R, which is Hazel's name, and W-P-R, which is Wallace's name, 9-14-46. And it says in different script, J-M-C, me, D-L-P, my husband, and our date, which is 6 I do believe that our relationships can go on after one party has left because we live, we live in memory. So I guess we'll see, or you'll see because I'll be dead. <laughs> you'll see something maybe. Maybe who knows? I don't know. I don't, I'm, I'm not invested in that question too much, but it's a very, it's, it's not morose. It's a very sweet and telling thing to tell me that. And I appreciate that. Let's hope it doesn't happen for 20 or 30, 40, no, 30, 40 I mean, years. I, I was going to say that. <laughs> sure. It's not something that I'm plotting. <laughs> Especially in, in the, the queer world, there is this necessity that I feel about, about being there for each other and, and honoring that, that the kind of chosen, the chosen families, and especially when the moments of life that are pivotal. There's an entire generation of gay men that's missing just before me. Right. Not an entire, but a vast number of that generation is gone well before they were even my age. And people weren't allowed to be with them. Nope. I was in a group of uh, ministers talking about COVID and being tired of COVID and whatnot. As you can imagine, everyone's tired of COVID, but and we're also tired of it. And one of the women ministers in the group said she was just sick and tired of this and didn't know how long she was, was going to take it anymore. And another minister in the group was, is a, an older gay man than me. And I said to him, do you think any of your exhaustion has anything to do with the fact that this is not our first pandemic, but people keep acting as if it is. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And he said, I didn't think about that, but now I'm thinking about it. When, when the AIDS crisis was, was in full bloom, such a funny word to use. And there was so much shame and anger around it. Maybe one of the reasons COVID's not upsetting me as much is because mostly if you get COVID, no one calls you dirty. The whole not getting vaccinated thing is, I think, coming up to that. Frankly, I'm vaccinated and I would, would like everyone to be vaccinated. I'm not ready to shame people about that. I think it may be because I've lived through AIDS. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There's a lot to unpack there. The premier of my home province made a comment the other week about the unvaccinated being like people living with AIDS in terms of the social rebuke and shame. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. I just don't think rebuke and shame works very well. I think it's cheap theology. 
the part that gets me is like the way that the AIDS pandemic forced a generation to contend with with death and and how to live in in spite of death. If no one's got your back and you may die, what should you do with your life? And there's a lot of answers to that question. And they're yep. not there's not easy. It's not like I've noticed in my circles is there's a lot of shaming, maybe less so now, but maybe still so, about people's different risk practices. Yeah. And there's a bill in Colorado that's being passed through the state legislature that's going to ensure that you could always have someone to visit you in the hospital, even if there's a pandemic. Hmm. Thinking about like how many people died alone and and how important, I mean, here's full circle, how important human connection and friendship is to our very well-being. Agreed. That that, that should factor in as well. Like there, there's a risk to not being able to connect. And that doesn't mean that there aren't practices to make it less risky, but there's a risk not to as well. And it's one thing that I've taken from AIDS activism is harm reduction, giving people the information they need and the tools to protect themselves is one of the best strategies to allowing people to make the choices that they're already going to make because we need connection. When I was doing harm reduction in Vancouver, BC, and I learned to stuff a crack pipe so I could teach people how to stuff crack pipes safely. It's not about telling them what to do. It's about saying, if you are going to do this, please do it safely. Please use care. It hopefully subtracts the judgment out of it because you're right. It's connection is a necessity for people and we have different, each person has different levels of need around that but we all have some need for it. You know, I, a moment ago, I was thinking about process theology when you were talking about choices you make. Mm. This is how I talk about process theology sometimes in the sermon. Imagine that you and God are co-creators of the universe, which is what this kind of means. And the visual I use is imagine that you are a knitting needle and God is the other knitting needle and time is the string that you dance together to create, right? And you can change the pattern, but it takes two needles and the strength, the time. And the point sort of, we are in a dance with the universe to make choices. And we get not an infinite number because eventually you stop living, but a lot of choices every moment to make a better choice than the one you made before. As a person who used to be involved professionally in HIV care, it's really hard for me sometimes to watch people make bad choices or choices that I wouldn't make because I think you could, with just a little care, you could be so much safer, you know, but you're right. If we give people the tools, after that, we're done. When I uh, give folks money out of my car, then the side of the road and they would need to have a little sign, you know, I'm hungry, I need to eat. Once I give them the five or $10, I, I'm, I can't be in charge of that. 
if they're going to use it to buy McDonald's or booze or tofu, I'm not in control of that. I'm in control of my little part, which was here's $5 or $10 and I can bless them and go on my way. Does that make sense? Well, I'm, I'm grateful to be knitted and knitting with you. I am also grateful. Thank you for inviting me into this. I didn't know what I was walking into, but I trusted you and did it anyway. Um, and I hope I haven't sounded silly. That's the sign of true friendship. I don't know what this is, but I'm trusting. (laughs) I just love Joe and our conversations and, and I feel on the spot because I'm hoping that this conversation that we recorded by ourselves and now we're sharing with all of you landed, that it provided something of meaning for you. And I would love to hear from you if that's the case, if we should try to do more of these kind of outside the box type experiences here on the podcast. And so get in touch. You can email us at deeperpod, D-E-E-P-E-R-P-O-D at foothillsuu.org. Or just reach out on social. Everything we do is possible because our community supports our work. And so if you're not already supporting our work, please find your way at foothillsuu.org slash give. There's lots of ways that you can contribute. And once again, thanks for listening. It's an honor to know that you're there. I really appreciate it.